0: Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof podcast. Episode number 128, Ethan Lieb. Are the federal rules of evidence unconstitutional? Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Alex Nunn, from the University of Arkansas School of Law. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence and proof. We bring virtual workshops to you throughout the academic year. Today on Excited Utterance, I am joined by Ethan Lieb. Ethan is the John D. Calamari Distinguished Professor of Law at Fordham University's School of Law. Ethan and I had occasion to discuss his recent law review article published in the American University Law Review, which asks a provocative question. Are the federal rules of evidence unconstitutional? In fact, that's the very title of the piece. And at first blush, you might think, of course not. The Federal Rules of Evidence have been in effect for almost 50 years. There's a copy of the Federal Rules of Evidence in probably every courtroom. The code is far too entrenched to have constitutional defects. But as you'll hear today, Ethan actually presents a very strong case that the drafting of the Federal Rules of Evidence and that the Federal Rules of Evidence current structure does not accord with constitutional principles and, in particular, separation of powers. When we have a code that is, in fact, a statute, one that can be amended by the Supreme Court with just the concession or the assent of Congress, does that accord with constitutional strictures? Ethan's paper is really fun. It's potentially revolutionary in terms of how evidence law operates in the United States. I hope that you will enjoy my conversation with Ethan today. Ethan, welcome to Excited Utterance. Thanks for having me. So today we're going to examine kind of a big question, and that's whether the federal rules of evidence themselves are unconstitutional. Now that's fascinating, and we're going to dig into it in a second. But I want to begin just with an introductory question. So what led you to this topic examining the constitutionality of the Federal Rules of Evidence?
1: Well, thanks for bringing some attention to the paper. And I, I admit I'm not an evidence scholar per se. I did come to this through the back door, as it were. I'm, I teach legislation and regulation in the first year curriculum. And one of the kind of big cases we study there is a case called Green versus Bach Laundry, which is a very, very complicated case about the Federal Rules of Evidence Section 609 about impeachment. And there is a strange miss. Writing that occurs during the formulation of that particular rule. And the Supreme Court is very, very conflicted about how to handle what looks like just an error that was created in the writing of that particular rule. And then you read the notes after the case, and and the students struggle with can the Supreme Court change the federal rule of evidence in a case, just decide that it doesn't actually mean what it says? And then you read a note after the case, and it says, oh, the Supreme Court just changed this rule after it decided the case. And I thought, well, that's really curious. How does the federal rulemaking process actually work? Why is the court struggling so much with what it's treating as statutory interpretation, but then just turns around in some non-adjudicatory function and just change the rules? So that brought me into the world of the federal rulemaking process. And then this very, very quirky way in which the federal rules of evidence intersect with the federal rulemaking process. And it just seemed to me kind of odd that really very, very few people had written about it or even taken much note of the just central oddity of the way the Federal Rules of Evidence work.
0: So with that introduction, let's actually build out your case then for the unconstitutionality of the Federal Rules of Evidence. So under the Rules Enabling Act, how is the enactment of the the FRE or the Federal Rules of Evidence supposed to happen? Well, when the original Rules Enabling Act is passed in 1934, I don't think
1: that Congress is really anticipating that there are going to be rules of evidence that fall within the purview of the Rules Enabling Act. They actually don't use the word evidence. They just use practice and procedure. And the federal rulemaking process for the Federals of Civil Procedure is a little bit underway at this point. Okay, so think about that you have a four-year gap from the time of the Rules Enabling Act, then the Federals of Civil Procedure are passed. And it does not really become a serious effort to create a federal rules of evidence for many, many, many years. So you're not getting a real proposal for federal rules of evidence until 1972. So you're getting this massive gap. And I think in part, that reflects a sort of ambivalence about whether the Rules Enabling Act ever was supposed to permit the Supreme Court to promulgate federal's evidence at all. Indeed, when the promulgation occurs, you're actually getting Supreme Court justices writing dissents. So this is a very odd set of documents that you can find in the US reporters. You get cases, you get opinions, you get dissents for real cases, and then sitting in between a bunch of cases you will get an occasional dissent from Justice Douglas or Justice Frankfurter saying, I'm not really sure we have the authority to pass federal rules of evidence under the Rules Enabling Act. So there's actually like literal dissents that sit there. They're not dissents to cases. They're dissents to a promulgation of the federal rules of evidence. And then what occurs, interestingly, at that point is Congress takes note and says, yeah, you know what, we're not really sure that the Supreme Court does have this promulgation authority under our original Rules Enabling Act. So what they do is they pause the clock and say, we're not going to let the Supreme Court actually pass a federal rules of evidence. We're going to do it ourselves. Right? So they step in and between 1972 and 1975, essentially passed their own federal rules of evidence that are now statutory. They're not federal rules in the standard way the federal rules of civil procedure are, or the federal rules of appellate procedure are, which were promulgated by the Supreme Court and then became the core of our federal rules. Instead, what happens with the federal rules of evidence is although there's an effort to promulgate by the Supreme Court many, many years after the Rules Enabling Act, the Supreme Court is stopped in its tracks. Congress decides to do it itself. And so what you see, most of the federal rules of evidence are actually passed by Congress in 1975, signed by the president.
0: I I want to circle back and touch on this because I think it's an important point, but I'm not sure the extent to which our listeners will have a real strong background in legislation How did the enactment of the federal rules of evidence, you mentioned the federal rules of civil procedure, how did those two codes differ in terms of their enactment and the differing forms of enactment? Is it going to have an influence moving forward?
1: Yeah. So as I tried to suggest, the federal rules of civil procedure are in the first instance promulgated by the Supreme Court with the help of these advisory committees that I'm sure many people who are actually scholars of these subjects are fully aware that although the Supreme Court formally is doing the promulgations and the statutes basically permit the Supreme Court to use the help of judicial conference and advisory committees that are often staffed by law professors. So the federal rules of civil procedure in nineteen thirty-eight is promulgated technically by the Supreme Court, and then they go into effect. Now, there's a provision in the Rules Enabling Act that essentially says any statutory enactment that is in conflict with the rules after they become effective shall have no force or effect. And so that's a clause that I'm very interested in, and that forms the centerpiece of my argument about the Federal Rules of Evidence on Constitutionality, something that is often referred to as supersession. So the idea in the Rules Enabling Act is really once you get an amendment or a primary enactment. So the original idea was that the federal rules of civil procedure were going to come into effect. And then whatever underbrush happened to have existed in the federal code books that Congress had passed would become of no force or effect anymore. So there was almost like a sunset imagined what Congress passes a conditional repeal of any procedural rule that they had enacted themselves if the Supreme Court comes along and engages in a federal rulemaking process that, in a sense, preempts what what Congress had done before. But in that context, you really are pretty circumscribed in how far out Congress was really thinking this was going to occur. I think they anticipated there was going to be a big federal rules push soon after the enactment of the Rules Enabling Act, and then whatever underbrush had existed would become uh, defunct once the new rules had come into place. What's different about the way the federal rules of evidence work is that you still get this supersession idea. You still get the mechanism in which were the Supreme Court to try to change any rule in the federal rules of evidence, it would make the prior enactments of no force or effect. But what's very odd about the way the federal rules of evidence work is that it was set in motion in the first instance by Congress. So Congress establishes legislative supremacy, as it were, with respect to federal rules of evidence, knowing full well that there's tons of things within the federal rules of evidence that are substantive, that are not merely procedural. And then it's saying in the same breath, Supreme Court, if you want to repeal anything we've done, apparently you have the authority to do so because that supersession clause is still in there. Now, in 1975, when this system was set into motion, this is prior to CHADA, so your listeners probably will remember something about INS versus CHADA, the legislative veto case. So we now know after 1983 that you can no longer have a legislative veto that allows an executive agency or an executive actor to be vetoed by some subgroup of the legislative branch, whether it's one house veto or a two house veto, joint resolution, what have you. But in 1975, when Congress first sets in motion this Federal Rules of Evidence regime, Chada hasn't happened yet. And so they actually pretty explicitly have in their supersession idea, that is, although it was true that they believed that the Supreme Court could, in a sense, repeal a statute of the United States that they have set in motion in 1975, they had preserved for themselves the legislative veto. So that anytime that the Supreme Court tried to do something that even one House thought was problematic, right? They could stop it in its tracks. They could countermand what the Supreme Court was doing and preserve legislative policy. But then you get Chada. And when Chada occurs now, the Congress can no longer preserve its supremacy in these domains. And it is willy-nilly up to the court whenever it feels like repealing a statute of the United States that it can do so even outside of an article three, case or controversy, which strikes me as very, very troubling and quite problematic. Because what you're getting is repeals of statutes of the United States without bicameralism and presentment, which seems to me to sit in some basic tension with the constitutional scheme. Right? And then you get further specification of what CHADA really stands for in a later case that is conventionally known as the Line Item Veto Act case. Although some people will know it by its formal name, Clinton versus City of New York, so that case you have an attempted delegation by Congress to the President to cancel items of spending, and the court essentially says, "Nope, you can't delegate away that legislative authority." And they cite Tchata, essentially to say, "Tchata stands for the principle that you can't allow another branch to repeal." a law of the United States. It has to go through Article 1, Section 7, bicameralism and presentment. And that's not what the federal rules of evidence are going through when the advisory committee decides that it wants to change a federal rule of evidence that Congress passed in 1975.
0: So pulling back then, it seems as if the federal rules of evidence just generally have problems with the non-delegation doctrine. Is that a fair characterization? I
1: mean, some people read the Clinton case or the line item veto act case to not really be this formalistic case about whether you can delegate cancellation authority, but it's a more general non-delegation type of inquiry. So both Justice Scalia and Breyer write separately and influentially in the Clinton case, trying to encourage the court to see the statute at issue in that case as raising mostly non-delegation concerns rather than presentment concerns under Article 1, Section 7. Now, they're unsuccessful. They want to use it as a non-delegation case because they think the non-delegation doctrine never is going to strike down a delegation. But I think that one of the things that's changed since that case, which is in 1997, is that the court is a little bit more interested in non-delegation as a problem, as we're seeing term after term after term. The court is very focused on the worry about the delegation of serious and important questions to administrative agencies that are not governed by significant policy constraints. And so even if you wanted to say, oh, well, the Supreme Court's really just acting like a supercharged administrative agency when it is futzing with the federal rules of evidence. Now, I don't think that's a terrible way to look at it. Just note a couple of facts. One, there's no intelligible principle by which the federal rules of evidence are to be changed, repealed, dealt with because of changing constitutional law. It's just there's no constraint really that Congress has provided to help Govern the Supreme Court's decisions about changing the federal rules of evidence. So that's one problem. Another problem is they're not governed by the Administrative Procedure Act. So the APA is part of what legitimates when we delegate to administrative agencies, part of what legitimates the decisions they make is the procedures that they have to follow. And the Supreme Court doesn't have to follow any APA constraints, right? They're not thought of as an administrative agency in that regard. Finally, administrative agencies, part of what legitimates the decisions that they make is that they are subject to meaningful judicial review. But what does it mean to say that the Supreme Court is subject to its own judicial review? The Supreme Court is sitting in judgment of its own non-adjudicatory decisions about what the federal rules of evidence should say, and that's crazy. That's just a fox guarding the hen house. There's no meaningful review. It used to be that there was at least congressional review when you had the legislative veto, but the legislative veto was gone post-Chada. So the non-delegation problems seem to me are pretty severe, even if what you want to say is, oh, come on, this is just like a delegation to an administrative agency, and we're not so fussy about delegations. It's true, we're not so fussy about delegations, but one, Supreme Court's getting more fussy. Two, you usually have the APA as a backdrop for the process constraint. Three, you usually have judicial review as a backstop, and you don't have that here either.
0: So I think you've made a really strong case now for the formal unconstitutionality of the federal rules of evidence. But I want to circle back now on something that you just started to touch on, and that's functional or pragmatic arguments. So just thinking pragmatically, what is the problem with the structure of the federal rules of evidence? What problems does it create? And what kind of paradoxes do we have to figure out with the structure?
1: Okay. I mean, I'll focus on two. One, I think there are significant federalism problems with the way the federal rules of evidence work. So the easiest example I think I can point to to make the point is a federal rule of evidence 411. So that's about how liability insurance is supposed to not figure in proving negligence or wrongful conduct, but can figure in proving a witness's bias, prejudice, agency ownership, or control. So that is not strictly a procedural matter. That really does seem to have meaningful effects on how to think about tort law in any particular jurisdiction. So when you're in a federal court, say in in a federal court's diversity jurisdiction, most courts are going to apply federal rule of evidence for 11, even if the substantive state law that should govern that tort lawsuit has a different view about how to think about, Liability insurance and how the role that liability insurance should play in proving a party's negligence or wrongful conduct. Okay, so, and what you see in that context is that every decision that the Supreme Court makes in a non adjudicatory function, making a federal rule of evidence, can have a meaningful effect on a state's own ability to control its tort law. All right, and that seems to sit in some fundamental tension with principles of federalism under our constitution. So that's one important way to think about why this is functionally troubling. The same idea might be thought through rule 407, which is about subsequent remedial measures, again, about proving negligence or culpable conduct. That seems to be a core principle of tort law that should be controlled by states, not by federal courts when you're sitting in diversity. Erie tells us that we really should be applying state substantive law, but by and large, federal courts feel bound to apply the federal rules of evidence, even though they might not be are quite arguably procedural. And that's troubling. And the fact that the Supreme Court willy nilly can change any state's tort law without much process, I think is a defect in the way we run the federal rules of evidence. The final thing I would say from a functional standpoint has to do with the role of the jury, which I take to be of constitutional magnitude, Right? how juries should function in civil cases. The truth is that through and through most of the federal rules of evidence, when you go to civil law jurisdictions that don't use juries, you're not getting very elaborate rules of evidence. Why? Well, because so much of the rules of evidence are there to control what the jury can see, what it can't see. So, I mean, you could cite chapter and verse on various rules. So rule 104 about preliminary questions about admissibility is really what's supposed to be within the earshot of the jury, what isn't supposed to be in the earshot of the jury. Rule 403, which is allowing judges to exclude relevant evidence if a judge is convinced of probative value is substantially outweighed by something like misleading the jury, right? And so we could keep going so much of the federal's of evidence is shot through with an idea about what it is the jury is supposed to be doing in a particular case and that seems to me of such serious constitutional magnitude that those decisions really should be made either through article 3 case and controversy type of decision. so the supreme court obviously is going to help contour what the right to a jury in the constitution means they have some form of judicial supremacy about what the constitution means but not through non-adjudicatory functioning like a supercharged administrative agency. Rather, what constrains the judicial supremacy is that they have to make their determinations through a case or controversy. And then if there are bigger policy decisions about the role of the judge and jury, is it really judges that should be making that determination at the policy level? You have the same conflict of interest problem that I was alluding to earlier. And so maybe there's a role for Congress here to help contour what the right to jury really means and not just let judges decide. And so that's another functional reason that the way we are doing the federal rules of evidence is troubling and probably
0: should get a reboot. So, Ethan, I have to say you're persuading me, but one question lingers. If the federal rules of evidence are unconstitutional, what can we do to fix the problem? Yeah, so great. And
1: I'm afraid to say that I don't think that much has to be different But because I'm a bit of a formalist about this, I do think that there's a central role to doing it the right way under our constitutional system. So if you think about the way when Congress was kind of retooling bankruptcy procedure, so this is something that happened in 1978 the Congress realized this idea of supersession that the Supreme Court just can overturn any policy decision we make without much dialogue with us, that seems like the wrong way forward. So what we're going to do instead is parcel out things that are real policy decisions that we're making. Those are going to be immunized from supersession. These are the things that we think are congressional choices, and the Supreme Court cannot just by a stroke of a pen essentially change it right so those will be laws we will pass those as public laws anything that's really just purely procedural the number of days you have to respond to a complaint, the color of the back of a particular filing, right? These procedural questions we're going to leave wholly in the hands of the Supreme Court, and we're not going to pass those things as public laws at all. They will not have statutory status. They will merely be rules. And so we will go about repealing each and every enactment we've made that is purely procedural, and we will leave those as purely rules. And the Supreme Court, if it wants, can supersede itself. If it decides it likes redbacks rather than bluebacks, not our problem, go ahead and let them do that. Okay. So that vision of what Congress did, it seems to me thoughtfully and totally coherently in 1978, when it was revising the way it was going to treat its bankruptcy procedure rules, seems like a very good model for what it ought to be doing in the federal rules of evidence. That is, it should say, there are a couple of things that we really are clear that our policy choices we want to make, we may want to preempt state tort law, like they have the authority to preempt state tort law on issues about liability insurance, but they should do so explicitly and not leave it up to the Supreme Court to make a determination willy-nilly about how liability insurance should be treated. Which would then preempt all state law. So that, or privileges. So there's a rule 501. This is supposed to be immunized from the Rules Enabling Act method of change. Like the Supreme Court can't just willy nilly change the privilege rules. I mean, they can through their Article Three case or controversy authority, they can't through their rulemaking authority that they've been given through the Rules Enabling Act. And so that's another window into the future for the Rules Enabling Act. Congress needs to decide the following things are policy decisions that are immunized from Rules Enabling Act changes and supersession. And then almost everything else should be repealed as statutory. There's no reason for something that's purely procedural to be a statute that should just have a rule status. And if the Supreme Court wants to change the rule, they can do so. That's the kind of overall picture I have of what would be constitutionally permissible with the kind of rules we have. I mean, we could revisit Chato, I don't think we're going to, but we could revisit Chada. We could say, oh, it would be interesting if we revived the capacity for a legislative veto in some areas where there's a bit of an overlap of reasonable kinds of authority. So in some of these contexts, which are not quite procedural, not quite substantive, we might want the court and the Congress to be in dialogue with each other in a more direct way. And maybe some form of a legislative veto would be appropriate in that domain but we're not there. Chata is the law of the land. Clinton is the law of the land. And it's going to be very, very difficult to disrupt that. It's not so difficult to take the model of what happened with bankruptcy in 1978 and import it to the federal rules of evidence. And I think to the extent that there are people on the advisory committee who are invested in their control and authority over the federal's evidence. That doesn't really have to change. It has to change only with respect to the things that are clearly substantive and clearly should be policy choices for Congress to make. And that seems to set us back on course
0: to the way our constitutional government is supposed to work. Well, this has been wonderful. And I only have one more question for you. It's kind of our famous last question, if you will. What's next for the literature here? Is there another type of paper that could shed additional insight on this issue?
1: I think that's a great question. I've been excited by the reception that the papers gotten. I think there are sometimes papers that have this quality of oh, "this is unconstitutional," and people think, like, "Well, that's really cute," but you know, obviously, nothing is going to change. I do feel like it is waking up a number of evidence scholars to this defective mechanism and opening a conversation about paths forward to change it. I'm not sure my fix is exactly the right fix or how we're going to set things back on track. I think the politics of this are still areas I haven't fully understood. So a lot of people are aware of some of the recent interventions Congress has made into the federal rules of evidence. They are not attractive to many liberal-minded folks. So it's not obvious that when Congress pays attention to this, it does a good job. And I think I'll get some pushback from that. I think that's totally reasonable and appropriate. But the underlying politics of how to get from where we are to a sounder constitutional footing. That seems to me there's still work to be done. And I really only have a few pages at the back of this paper about how to get from here to there. And so I'm really curious whether as more evidence folks see these problems, whether they're willing to keep nudging and pushing to change it. What's very interesting, and the paper goes through this story in 1988, Congress revisits. You know, do we want to keep this process the same? Because in 1934, they knew they were getting the federals soon thereafter, and they did get them in 1938. By the time you got to 1988, post-Chada, the problems with supersession were starting to become salient. But lo and behold, in front of Congress, you had people who were very invested in the system because they appreciated the authority that law professors had in moving the federal rules of civil procedure in various directions. And so they wanted the system to be sustained. And then there were others and in particular Steve Burbank who famously was pushing back and said supercession is crazy. This is law professors shouldn't be writing the law of the land. And so things did stay as they were in 1988. And I think there's a possibility of another moment where the professorate can get involved and not be self-interested in sustaining control over the federal of evidence, but think about what would be best for the polity in creating good dialogue for litigants, for public comments and for our public representatives and for judges to have a full-throated conversation about where to
0: go from here all together. Ethan, this has been an awesome conversation. It's a really fantastic paper. I hope our listeners will go out and read it as soon as they can. But thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, man. This was really fun. To my mind... Ethan's article is a compelling account that the federal rules of evidence do indeed have some constitutional problems. That minimally, case law that we've applied to the line-item veto, case law that emphasizes bicameralism and presentment, seems to be violated in the context of the federal rules of evidence. And today, as, as Ethan was laying out kind of the amazing labyrinth that is required of any amendment to the federal rules of evidence, whether it is the creation of a new evidentiary rule or alternatively an amendment to an existing rule, my mind didn't just think about how that process of working through the advisory committee, the Supreme Court, Congress, how it presents constitutional concerns. My mind also went to the practical how this particular process, how the incredible maze that one must navigate to amend evidence law or controlling evidence, controlling evidence code at the federal level, how it has stymied evidence law's substantive evolution. Now, some of our listeners will know that this is a topic that is near and dear to my heart. In my own research, I've looked at how evidence law has operated under the Federal Rules of Evidence, and I've noticed how since the codification of the Federal Rules of Evidence back in 1975, we've reached unprecedented levels of just stagnation with evidence law's substantive evolution. And that substantive stagnation is a byproduct of the very system that Ethan is here critiquing. Congress can amend the federal rules of evidence if it wants to. The Supreme Court has authority to amend the federal rules of evidence. The advisory committee is tasked with proposing beneficial changes. But despite that division of labor, despite that unprecedented division of labor, evidence law seems to go nowhere. We continue to maintain federal rules of evidence at the federal level that rest on folk psychology. The notion of an excited utterance, that that statement will be more reliable, has been vitiated on an empirical level. The notion under Rule 609 that an individual who has a prior criminal conviction will be inherently untrustworthy is just outdated and even problematic under modern cultural norms. Yet given how the federal rules of evidence were structured, Given their unique statutory status and the involvement of the Supreme Court with Congress, with the Advisory Committee, nothing ever seems to change. And so the question that I want to pose to you all is, what are we getting out of this particular state of affairs? We have, according to Ethan a code, the federal rules of evidence, that is actually a statute, a statute that has woeful constitutional deficiencies. And that might be something that we could turn a blind eye to if we were getting significant normative benefits from that particular statute or that particular code. But there seems to be a scholarly consensus that the federal rules of evidence has all sorts of normative problems. And it therefore seems to me that that's not the best state of affairs. That's not the best we could do. So perhaps in the decades ahead, we should seek change, minimally for two reasons. One, to put our evidentiary code on better constitutional footing in accord with Ethan's article today. And two, to make that code better, to make it normatively optimal, to accord it with best scientific understandings and to accord it with modern cultural norms. It's a fun topic. I really enjoyed Ethan's paper, and I hope you enjoyed this episode of Excited Utterance. Support for Excited Utterance is generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, as well as the University of Arkansas School of Law. The producer of Excited Utterance is Ed Chang, and the production editor is Madeline DiPietro. Music for Excited Utterance is provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. I'm your host, Alex Nunn, and I hope you'll join us next time when we tackle another piece in the world of evidence and proof.